Hey, this is Chad here. Uh, some of you may know that I have another podcast. It's called A Feat of Lunatic Daring. It's a podcast about Jim Henson. And uh, we're currently on that show watching uh, every episode of The Muppet Show. And we just happened to get to the episode featuring Mark Hamill and the stars of Star Wars. So I thought, hey, that's of interest to my other podcast. So I'm going to go ahead and put the episode up on here on this feed. You don't have to listen to it, but uh, we break down the uh, the Star Wars episode of The Muppet Show, which I think is kind of fun. And then the second episode is actually a, a guest stars Christopher Reeve. And if you're a fan of Star Wars, there's a good chance you're a fan of Superman. So uh, I don't know. I was just thinking maybe give give it give it a listen. And uh, if you don't like it, uh, awesome. But uh, uh, I figured since it was Star Wars related, I would go ahead and throw it up in the feed. So. Here you go. Here's an episode of A Feat of Lunatic Daring. To Luke Skywalker, C-3PO and R2-D2, help, I am being held prisoner by a bunch of weird turkeys. It does rather sound like your show. (laughs) Yeah, it does. Hi-ho, and welcome once again to a feat of lunatic daring, the most sensational, inspirational, celebrational, Muppetational podcast about Jim Henson and the Muppets. My name is Chad. I'm here with my co-host, Nick Jackson. Nick, I don't know if you knew this about me, but I really like Star Wars. Yeah, I, I had no idea. You don't do another <laughs> uh, podcast about that, right? This is your only one? You're not... Not cheating on you not, with another you're podcast? You're not cheating me with another podcast about Star Wars? This is not news to me? I plead the fifth. So I am very excited to talk about tonight's episode. Uh, but how are you? I'm doing all right. I am happy once again to be at this side of the week. You mean the end of it? Yes. People probably know by now that we record on Friday nights. So we're both equally tired and relieved mm-hmm. <laughs> on Friday nights. I foresee sleep in my future. Uh, this is a feed of Lunatic Daring. We're podcast about Jim Henson and the Muppets. Before we get started, I'd like to ask you to check us out on social media at Lunatic Daring on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for now and uh, lunaticdaring.com, where you can find all of our watch lists, our episodes, and our bibliography. We are currently going through The Muppet Show two episodes at a time. Uh, Also, if you get a chance, uh, leave us a review. That would be great, A a rating or a review on your podcast app of choice. I know you can do it on Apple. You can do it on, I think you can do it on Spotify. You can do it on, God, I think even Google's got podcasts. I don't know, but, you know, leave us a review. That would be really help out a lot. Like I said, two episodes of The Muppet Show at a time, and we got two uh, tonight that star two of my childhood heroes. I actually recognized all of the guest stars this week, which I don't usually get to say. These are pretty big ones. Oh, yeah. Yeah, these are pretty big ones. So, uh, you ready to get started? Let's get this started. It's The Muppet Show with our very special guest stars, the stars of Star Wars. Yeah! Mark Richard Hamill was born September 25th, 1951 in Oakland, California to Virginia and William, who was a U.S. Navy captain. He is one of seven children. He has two brothers and four sisters. And due to his father's service in the Navy, he moved around a lot, attending school in Virginia, San Diego, and for his junior year of high school, Japan. After graduating, he enrolled at the Los Angeles City College to major in drama. He had a little early success, landing landing a recurring role on the popular soap opera General Hospital. He also had roles on such shows as The Bill Cosby Show, The Partridge Family, and One Day at a Time. But in 1976, his friend and future Freddy Krueger, Robert England, recommended that Mark try out for his this science fiction film he had heard about. Mark did and ended up landing the lead role of Luke Skywalker in George Lucas's Star Wars. 
That film would go on to become, well, Star Wars, and Hamill would become an instantly recognizable face the world over. He would go on to be in six Star Wars films, the original trilogy from 1997 to 1983, and the sequel trilogy, which started in 2015. This is the role that defines Mark Hamill to most people. He would also go on to depict Luke in radio dramatizations on the more recent Disney Plus shows like The Mandalorian and The Book of Boba Fett, and most notoriously, the 1978 Star Wars holiday special. Star Wars made Mark into a teen idol, landing him on the cover of many heartthrob magazines. He really tried to get away from this image quickly, even before the original trilogy was done, and starred in the 1978 adventure comedy Corvette Summer and Sam Fuller's World War II epic The Big Red One in 1980. I think I've actually seen Corvette Summer randomly. But after Star Wars, Mark's career definitely fell off and the rest of the 80s weren't very memorable. He did some Broadway, starring in The Elephant Man and Amadeus. In 1990, he played the trickster on two episodes of the short-lived Flash television series. He's made guest appearances on shows like Mad TV, SNL, Third Rock from the Sun, Just Shoot Me, and Sequest DSV. He also lent his voice to the video games Wing Commander 3 and 4, and I remember those performances quite clearly because I loved Wing Commander games, just loved them. My dad was super into those. He also appeared in Kevin Smith's Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back, which poked fun at him, just like many of his other TV appearances did. And when I say poke fun, I mean that Mark was in on the joke, of course, but still, he went through a very kind of self-effacing phase. He knocked it out of the park. In 1992, the second act of Mark's career started when he debuted as the Joker on Batman the Animated Series. It turned out that Mark was really good at voices, despite what The Muppet Show says, and he became a successful voice actor. His Joker is still the gold standard to many, including me, and he would go on to reprise the role for other television series, straight-to-video animated films, and the Arkham series of video games. When I read a Batman comic... I don't hear Nicholson or Ledger, I hear Hamill. This led to a ton of other voice work, too numerous to list. He did an episode of The Simpsons as himself, which is a great one. He played Fire Lord Ozai on Avatar The Last Airbender, which probably means something to people that aren't me. Uh, yeah. It's a big role. His most recent jobs, however, were as Chucky, Chucky in the ni- in the 2019 Child's Play remake and as Skektek the Scientist in Dark Crystal Age of Resistance. In 1978, he married dental hygienist Mary Lou York and they are still married today. They have three children, all of whom had a cameo in the Star Wars film The Last Jedi. He is an outspoken liberal, hates Donald Trump, and is a great follow on Twitter. He is currently 70 years old. But Mark Hamill isn't the guest star of this Muppet Show episode. The guest star is the stars of Star Wars. So let's meet the rest of them briefly. Peter Mayhew was born in 1944 in Surrey, England, who played Chewbacca. Peter was a large man, clearly, and at the age of eight was diagnosed with gigantism. He would grow to be seven foot three inches tall. Mayhew appeared as Chewbacca in four Star Wars films, plus one holiday special. Didn't do many other movies, but wrote two books for children. Uh, The It's Okay to Be Different book, Growing Up Giant and an anti-bullying story, My Favorite Giant. Peter died in 2019 at age 74, and at the time I met him, he was a very nice and, yes, very tall gentleman. Anthony Daniels was born in Salisbury, England in 1946, and he plays the golden droid C-3PO. He has provided the voice for 3PO in every live-action Star Wars film, save for one, and also he also recorded, he was also the voice of... 3PO in, in the holiday special. He no longer wears the difficult suit he had to wear in the old days. He just does the voice. He gets he gets smarter. He gets younger people to wear the suit now. He also played Legolas in Ralph Bakshi's animated version of Lord of the Rings. 
and was on the British television drama Prime Suspect with Helen Mirren. He's currently 74, and the time I met him, he was friendly and sardonic and funny. Kenny Baker as R2-D2, the diminutive British actor, born in 1934 in Birmingham, stood three foot eight as an adult. He briefly worked in a circus and later founded a nightclub act with fellow little person actor Jack Purvis. In addition to R2-D2, whom Baker played in six films plus the holiday special, Baker was in The Elephant Man, Terry Gilliam's Time Bandits, the Ron Howard George Lucas fantasy epic Willow, and Jim Henson's film Labyrinth. He died in 2016, days shy of his 82nd birthday. In the time I met him, he was quiet and unassuming, but seemed like a nice enough fellow. Muppet Show episode number 417, with guest star The Stars of Star Wars, produced January 15th, 1980, premiered February 1980 really close. Did you notice that? That's like, it's like a month turnaround between these episodes. Mm -hmm. Empire Strikes Back wasn't out, but wouldn't come out until that May. So I'm guessing they hurried it to get it out before Empire Mm -hmm. would be my guess because Empire Strikes Back was going to come out Memorial Day weekend in 1980. So in this year in February, we have our cold open and we meet tonight's special guest star. Angus McGonagall. 15 seconds to curtain, Mr. McGonagall. So we meet we meet Angus McGonagall, and he's supposed to be our guest star for tonight. And um, and Scooter comes to get him. Which one, I'm, I'm questioning. Here's the thing. Kermit later seems offended by what Angus does as an act. But Kermit's the one who, who ostensibly booked him, right? Yeah, but it could have been a, a Slim Pickens kind of situation. So then uh, all of a sudden, the, the wall of the, the dressing room blows open. And you hear the Star Wars fanfare and C-3PO and R2-D2 and Luke Skywalker, not Mark Hamill. Important distinction here. Luke Skywalker comes into the room and Scooter decides that they would be better guests <laughs> than Angus McGonagall, the Argyle Gargoyle. Argyle Gargoyle. Wow, that's not easy to say. Um, so this is our introduction to them. They have they have stumbled onto this, this as, as Mark calls it. Excuse me, Master Luke, but what is this strange world we've come to? Beats me, 3PO. Seems we've landed on some sort of comedy variety show planet. Oh, we have the Muppet Show theme. Very weird moment where Gonzo does goes to do his trumpet thing and a duck just bites his nose. Do you think Camilla got jealous? I think so. I mean, one, low-hanging fruit, right, to go for the nose. Hmm. I wonder if he liked it. I hope this doesn't awaken something in Gonzo. I think everything's already been awakened in Gonzo. I, th- I don't think he any, has any more secrets to give us. Mm-hmm. So Kermit comes out to, to give everybody the good news that it was going to be Angus McGonagall, the Argyle Gargoyle, as the special guest. But instead, they got something better. They got the stars of Star Wars. Angus ain't too happy about this. He comes out looking like he talks like Shrek. That Kermit, this is an outrage. I demand my spot. Well, uh, listen, uh, I don't even know what an Argyle Gargoyle does. I gargle Gershwin. <laughs> The Argyle Gargoyle gargles Gershwin? Gorgeously! <laughs> Will you get off the stage? Who booked him? Kermit on a bender. Maybe he maybe he took too many Ambien, just doesn't remember. Part of his whiskey coma. Back when I was on Ambien, man, I used to order stuff from Amazon and it would come like three days later and I'd be like, what a wonderful present. <laughs> yeah. I- I once made my mom, my mom a Christmas list on Ambien. And when I went home for Christmas and I opened up a present and I said, holy cow, how did you know I wanted this? And she looked at me like I was an alien because she's like, you sent me a link and I had no recollection of it whatsoever. That's terrifying. Ambien is terrifying. 
<laughs> I haven't touched it in a very long time. Uh, so Kermit introduces our first act. A shepherd and a flock of sheep uh, sing a song called Remalema Ding Dong, which is, of course, an old uh, top 30 hit by the Edsels. You know, just kind of a... This was a pleasant sketch. Like, the first word that came to mind was pleasant. Very, very gentle sloping up. And then I took a closer look and I realized that these shepherds, shepherds have been up for at least three days straight. Because their eyes? <laughs> yes. Yeah. They're not quite bloodshot. <laughs> Or bloodshot, but still. Richard Hunt plays the whatnot um, shepherd. Sounds great singing the song, I think. He does a really good job. Yeah, it's a pleasant number. I see what you mean about their eyes. <laughs> a little bit, I guess. Yeah, not much to say about it. It's 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 it's, it's a pun on the fact that it's, it's, it's just a pun on Ram, right? Yeah. So in the spirit, because the season we've seen, I, I won't say that every episode's opened with a musical number that was particularly solid, but a good number of them have. And this is just like it's a, a palate cleanser, I guess, for you to get ready for the rest of the show. It, it does what it's supposed to do, I think. So after Remalema Ding Dong, uh, we go backstage and 3PO and R2 are trying to explain to Kermit why they're there. And the fact is that Chewbacca the Wookiee has been kidnapped and they received a note from Chewie, which, first of all, it feels weird to have, like, a note from Chewie in English. To Luke Skywalker, C-3PO and R2-D2, help, I am being held prisoner by a bunch of weird turkeys. And uh, as 3PO points out, it does sound like your show, and Kermit <laughs> begrudgingly agrees that a bunch of weird turkeys does indeed seem like his show. So uh, so that's why they're here, is Chewbacca's been kidnapped, and they're here to rescue him. Then all of a sudden, the back door opens up, and in comes Luke Skywalker. Remember all! Officers upstairs! Rubio, you cover that exit! Watch it like how a team! Down with the Empire! He's wearing his um outfit from the Empire Strikes Back, which isn't even out yet. Um, it's his Bespin fatigues from the Empire Strikes Back, which, the, like I said, the movie doesn't come out until that May. So it, it is interesting to see this would have been the first look of his uh, one of his costumes from the new movie. And people were going to, uh, at least over the course of the episode, people are going to really appreciate his new look. So he comes in and 3PO and uh, Kermit have a little bonding over how weird people are. He is a little frantic, like... Yeah. Some might say that he's experiencing something akin to a sugar high, but he's he's kind of all over the place at this point. Well, he's he, he's like kicking down doors. <laughs> he's like kicking at doors of dressing rooms and stuff, looking for Chewie. Now, when, since when does Chewie need rescued? I'm not so sure. Luke is kind of running rampant through the theater trying to find Chewbacca while 3PO and R2 are trying to keep it cool with Kermit. We get our Muppet News Flash. The newsman reports on the National Sheepdog Trials. <laughs> Here are the results of today's National Sheepdog Trials. All the sheepdogs have been found not guilty. The sheep don't like this because apparently sheep don't like sheepdogs and they, they attack. I don't know why they attacked the newsman. He didn't He didn't come down with a verdict. He's not the jury. To be fair, people are probably pretty quick to shoot the messenger on a lot of these things. We check in with Scooter for a second. He's in this like bedroom set and he's playing a, an acoustic guitar and he's, he just lets us know that he's he's um, he's practicing for a uh, his number in the second half of the show. So then we're backstage and we got more of, of Luke. Kermit asks him if they'll do a number or something and they're not they don't have time for that that's not what they're here to do right they're here looking for chewy but then Fozzie sees luke and goes oh my god it's mark hamill i'm a such a huge fan and and luke goes no let me i'm not him he's my cousin let me go get him and he goes down the back stairs and he comes back in wearing he comes back in as mark hamill not as luke skywalker now wearing a very nice 
kind of sweater do you call that? Is it an argyle sweater? Yeah, I think that's argyle. Like the gargoyle. Like the gargoyle. Comes in wearing an argyle sweater with his, his you know, looking like a nice 70s boy. And he puts on a little, and, and so now this is going to be, you know, part of our backstage story is that there's Luke and there's Mark and their cousins, even though they're, of course. Now, this confused the hell out of my kids. Not the idea of it, they, but the, the moments where they're on screen at the same time and stuff. Mm-hmm. My kids were wowed by Mark comes in and they're like, Mark, do you, you know, maybe you can be in the show. And they, they're like, what do you do? Oh, uh, well, you know, I've been uh, known to do impressions. Uh-huh. Who do you do? Oh, well, I just love impressions. Ah, no, oh, I just love doing them. Ah, terrific. Who do you do? Then he does some singing on the piano. That doesn't go well either. I've never heard him sing. And then uh, he, he even tries out as a dancing to be a dancing comedian, delivering a really bad joke very awkwardly. Great moment from Kermit, though, where he goes, Mark, I don't know how to say this, but... What else do you do? <laughs> I gargle Gershwin. Mark, I know exactly how to put this. Get out! At that point, Kermit kicks him out of the theater which I thought was great. He, he, he goes, actually, what does he say? He goes, Mark, I do know what to say this time. Get out. Unfortunately, Kermit has done one of the great sins of the theater and he's left the stage empty. And, you know, nature abhors a vacuum and so do gargling gargoyles. So Angus sneaks on stage and it's his chance to shine. He comes out and he starts gargling the tune to, su- the tune to summertime from Porgy and Bess. It's, a, it's as, about as offensive as you imagine it would be to gargle. Before <laughs> be gargling we get to that though. Show tune. If we could stop back to like the backstage thing a second ago when Luke's on there, Luke and not Mark. Can we talk about his lack of trigger discipline? Like I know he's a farm boy, but also (laughs) he's a farm. That finger is on the trigger all the time. He does threaten to make Fozzie into a rug. Yeah. So uh, Angus is, is gargling summertime and then Mark sneaks up behind him and starts gargling with him because that's one of his skills as well. But Kermit, again, not a fan of this entire bit, sends Animal out to, <laughs> sends Animal out to get him off stage. Animal's got a very particular set of skills. He's Kermit's, he's Kermit's very violent version of the hook. For some reason, whenever I think of this episode, I think of two things and one of them is gargling Gershwin. I don't know why. It's just silly. Alliteration. I think it is the alliteration. Uh, We get to our UK spot and we have a song called Three Little Fishies, which is a, um, what do we call these numbers? They're not quite black box. They they are, but they're like, it's three, it's three fish and their mother and another fish who's the narrator. It's a little Nemo plot. Yeah. It's very little Nemo-ish. Yeah. Um, We're finding Nemo. Um, Yeah. Sorry. How? Wow. I got those mixed up. (laughs) <laughs> Those are different things. Very different. And yeah, so it's just some fish singing singing the song about these three little fish that uh, decide they get they get too big for their britches and decide to leave their mom uh, and go out into the to leave the pond that they live in and go out into the sea. And uh, as they get out of the sea, they realize it's a little more dangerous out there when they run into a shark. But it's done with the uh, um, probably my guess is the puppeteers on a green or a black background, and then it's superimposed with the water and kind of chroma key. Because because the fish look a little transparent at times. Yeah, they're not 100% opaque, and that's uh, that's just a result of the the compositing process. A fairly like not memorable number, in my opinion. It wasn't. It's bad. It just sort of it it gets closer to Sesame Street than Muppet Show. Now we get to my favorite number of the episode. Our own Scooter has prepared an act for us. Uh, he can't play very well, but he's worked really hard on this. And after listening to Mark and Angus Gershwin gargling, anything should sound good. <laughs> Uh, anyhow, so let's give a big welcome to Scooter singing Six String Orchestra. Yeah! There's a couple of things wrong with this. Scooter's room has two things I'd like to point out. One, 
He's got both a Harvard banner and a Yale banner in the same room. That would never fly. No one is a Harvard fan and a Yale fan. It just can't happen. Second of all, he's got a poster of Luke Skywalker in his room, but he's also got a poster of a Star Destroyer and it's upside down. And I've never been able to watch this without noticing the upside down Star Destroyer in the background. He's a confused boy. It's just so, it's just, it just kills me. It just, as a Star Wars fan, it just kills me. It's just like, it's, it's upside down. But anyway, so it's a Harry Chapin song called Six String Orchestra. Very day I purchased it, I christened my guitar as my monophonic symphony, Six String Orchestra. In my room I practice late, they'd leave me alone. My mother said you're nothing yet to make the folks write home. That uh, is basically the premise is Scooter is sitting in his room and he's imagining himself being a rock star. Um, As he sings the first verse and chorus, he is joined in his room by kind of these ghostly apparitions of the mayhem. And then when he gets to the second verse, he goes into a full-on fantasy where he's on stage with the mayhem. Uh, with a big banner that says Scooter on the stage uh, singing this song. It's interesting to see Floyd in such shiny pants. <laughs> also, the yeah. first thing that's, like, I, I noticed the posters on the wall, but one of the first things that stuck out to me is this is the uh, the same set that was used in the, can't believe I just blanked on his name, composer for the Muppet movie. Paul Williams. Paul Williams. Uh, in the Paul Williams episode, isn't it? Oh, you mean when it was the three Paul Williams? Is, 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 is. Uh, when he was doing that, I think it was the opening number when he had like the the song with the van against the window. Yeah, no, it's uh, I just I I like the song and I like how it plays. I like the kind of ghostly versions of the mayhem that join him. I think that's a really cool moment, and then I think it's really fun when it gets into the big rock star fantasy. The structure of the episode feels a little uneven, but I know that it's all building toward the end. But yeah, it's um. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I, I don't think it's right to say that it feels disjointed because the backstage story does overlap with the onstage story pretty regularly. But No, I noticed this time too. It's a little irregular. Like it's a little, um, how to put it, it, it not, not to say that, I mean, like it's interesting because like this number doesn't seem to have anything to do with the rest of it, but he's got his like Luke Skywalker poster up in his room, you know? So there's at least some kind of link there. It's also, this feels like it would usually be a closer. But you would need the guest star for that though, I guess. Yeah. So backstage, Robin comes to tell Kermit something, but Kermit doesn't want to hear it because he only does the thing because Kermit's got a philosophy. He only does the thing in front of him. All he has to do is take care of the thing in front of him. He will never panic. Pigs in space. Pigs in space. Next, please. Uh, Now, what was it? Well, I was trying to tell you the Star Wars people have hijacked the swine trick. (laughs) They've hijacked the swine trick. At least they didn't panic. So then we go to Pigs in Space Part 1, where Luke, R2, and 3PO have taken over the swine trick. Link comes in and confronts them. He doesn't understand what's going on. This is his ship. Um, But he is wowed, of course, by uh, Luke's outfit. He's the first one to ask Luke who's his tailor. Strange Pork seems obsessed with the robots. So the thing about this, I've, I've got a few notes, obviously, but 
Yeah. Heavenly, the heavenly bodies comment is amazing, but <laughs> one of the heavenly bodies. Yeah. Um, I would argue. So it's very obvious that picky is hot to trot, but link also seems kind of thirsty. He's just being a bit more subtle about it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, like I said, Mark was a teen heartthrob, you know, I mean, I wouldn't call link or piggy teens at this point, but swine beat the funniest moment to me though. So, so strange pork likes playing with the droids. Um, my favorite part, though, is, like you said, Piggy sticks her head in. Mm, it's Link Skywalker. Ooh, one of the heavenly bodies. I'll uh, change. And then she leaves, and then she very predictably comes back, <laughs> dressed as Princess Leia. No! No! Oh, it is I, the princess. Oh. Princess? Yes, yes, I have just escaped from an evil fiend who held me prisoner. But the way she says, the way she calls his name Luke is very funny. And she talks about an evil fiend. Frank Frank is caught on that now whenever Piggy says evil, it's evil. <laughs> so Piggy comes in and she and Luke's like, who are you? And she's like, I'm the princess. And he makes a joke, which isn't cool. Uh, again, 19, 1980, but he makes a joke about her weight. But then she has a good comeback where she says, go along with this Skywalker or I'll cut you in half. <laughs> So he's like, Hey, it's the princess. <laughs> um, so then, um, so they, so then, uh, the, the view screen pops up with the villain, the, the, the sinister, the evil fiend that has kidnapped Chewbacca pops up on the view screen. And it's a, it's a villain we have met before. The world may never know. It is the fearsome. And as Link, Link will call him icky dearth Nader. So we got one of our rare kind of two-part Pigs and Spaces. I think we did this once before, but this kind of does take up the rest of the episode, the Pigs mm-hmm. and Space thing, right? So it, it creates the impression that everything's sort of been building to this point, but not with any real sort of consistency. Yeah, I can see. I can agree with that. Um, we get our Muppet News Flash. The newsman reports that the Swine Trek is about to make a soft landing on a distant planet. Okay. Then he also reports that Venus is about to make a hard landing on the Muppet Newsroom. This very much confused my girls because... What ends up crashing down on him is not a planet, but is the Venus de Milo. And uh, my kids haven't got that far in art class yet. Yeah, I, my only note was this is just far enough out of left field. But then we're right back in Coosbane for the remainder of the episode. Where the crew, where Luke and Piggy and Link and Strange Pork and R2 and 3PO encounter Dirth Nader. Uh uh, who, of course, is played by the great Gonzo. This is Dirth Nader. Yes, this is me, just a hickey. <laughs> well, what do you want of us, Nader? Well, why don't you say something? Speak! <sighs> Who's your tailor? I love that outfit! That's the second person who really likes Mark's outfit. Seeing Gonzo as Dirth Nader, I don't remember what any of the character names were, but I saw Puppet Master is one of the horror movies that I shouldn't have seen as a small child. And for whatever reason, when Gonzo's wearing that mask, he looks more like one of those killer marionette type characters than he does usually. Maybe it's just how angular the nose is or something, but... I don't think I've ever seen Puppet Master. There are a lot of sequels. I I don't remember which ones I, I did or didn't see. So uh, Luke tries to fire his blaster at Darth Nader, but it's no use because he's, he's got a device that has neutralized all the weapons. But he's got one weapon. Luke's got one weapon in his holster. This means we must resort to the ultimate weapon. <gasps> and hoity toity, what pray tell might that be? Chewbacca the Wookiee. Now my kids cheered. 
this is how I know I'm raising them right. They cheered when Chewbacca came out. They're very excited when Chewie comes out. So Peter Mayhew finally makes his appearance in the episode in the Chewbacca outfit. And uh, he comes out and he's basically going to strangle. It looks like strangled Darth Nader to death. Or if you're a Star Wars fan, probably rip his arms off because that's what Wookiees do. But Darth, Na- Darth Nader has one more trick up his sleeve and he brings out Angus McGonagall, the Argyle Gargoyle, to gargle Gershwin gorgeously, uh, which makes Chewbacca's ears hurt. And it's basically a sonic assault on all of our characters. How much do you want to bet Gonzo is the reason that Angus was on there in the first place? <laughs> he booked him? Not even necessarily that he booked him. He just heard Kermit complaining about needing a guest for the week. And then Gonzo's like, I know a guy. Luke's like, all is lost. What are we going to do? How are we getting out of this? And Kermit says, how else? With a song. <laughs> you are my lucky star. A bunch of the Muppets come on stage and they start much to the chagrin of the Star Wars cast who are kind of looking at each other like what the hell is going on here. And they come out to sing You Are My Lucky Star, which is most famous for its use in Singing in the Rain, but big, happy song. And yeah, they start singing You Are My Lucky Star while Luke and 3PO kind of sit in the back looking very confused. So they get the song out of the way and then... uh, the song part now comes the dance take it Chewie and R2 and we get maybe the most pitiful dance sequence I've ever seen I mean I haven't actually seen the Star Wars Christmas special but I'm told that it is significantly worse than this oh uh, by far by far I just meant like at R2 you can't blame R2 he's just kind of moving around and he's doing what he can but Peter Mayhew could be trying a little harder Mm. Chewie's dance is pretty pitiful he just kind of sways his arms and legs around a little bit. But 3PO does some tap dancing. I didn't think he had it in him, to be honest. And then uh, Kermit tries to get Luke to add something to the finale, but he refuses. But he goes and gets his cousin, Mark. And Mark comes out wearing a tuxedo. And uh, and he joins the Muppets in singing When You Wish Upon a Star. And a very prescient prescient moment. There you go. In a very prescient moment, uh, they sing When You Wish Upon a Star, which is, of course, from Pinocchio, while a castle rises behind them. And it's very much a Disneyland ending. Oh, yeah, I put a Canon Cousins and Disney hat trick because we've got Disney owns all of this now. (laughs) They already own Pinocchio. They now own Star Wars. They now own the Muppets. They had no problem clearing this for Disney Plus. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) But yeah, it was very it's it's funny in 1980. It wasn't. But now it reads like corporate synergy. Mm -hmm. Like if they did this now, people would be like, how shameless, you know? Mm hmm. So we have our closing and Kermit thanks the stars of Star Wars, but Luke also insists that they thank uh, Mark. So Mark comes out and they do a cute little visual trick where they're both on screen at the same time. This, again, more movie magic that blew my girl's minds. They were trying to figure out, like, does he have a twin? It's a stuntman. My one daughter asked if it was a cardboard standup of him that they made talk. And I'm like, no, no, it's just a special effect. And it's, it's hard to explain to a child what a special effect is. But I was like, it's just movie. I, I just I got down to it's movie magic, darling. It's movie magic. And of course, the last person to admire Luke's new outfit is Mark. Say, Luke, who's your tailor? I love that outfit. Rewatching this episode. Now, uh, on a personal note, this is the my wife and I watched this episode on our first date. <laughs> of course, we were about halfway through it when she said, who's Mark Hamill? And I'm not going to get into where that led. It was a magical moment, I'm sure. But upon watching it again, I still love this episode. But upon watching it again, I agree with you. I think it's a little uneven. It feels short in a way, I think, because because of how it all plays. It's all connected at the end. That is that is something that I've noticed with certain episodes where they break format a little bit. The pacing, it just it unbalances it. 
it, you yeah. you tip more toward the end and then everything starts to speed up a little bit. Yeah, I agree with that. I, I watched it three times this week. And as much as I enjoy it and I love Scooter's bit and I love any of the stuff with the Star Wars guys, I think it's a lot of fun. But I don't think the episode's perfect. But it's especially for like Star Wars is a big deal in 78, obviously. But would George Lucas have expected it to be as big a deal today as it was? Probably not. But seeing it and looking back at how so much of the buzz had been generated at that point and sort of sustained. Well, this was after the first movie, right on the eve of the second movie. So Star Wars was already a worldwide phenomenon. They had made Star Wars across the street from the Muppet Show, like the two studios across town. Like they they knew each other when they were making the when they were making the first season of the Muppet Show. They were shooting the original Star Wars. One might say too much of my identity is wrapped up into a 1977 classic film that I happen to love. I also love a 1978 film called Superman the Movie. Like, I'm more of a Marvel kid than a DC kid, but I'll still rate that first Superman movie as one of the best superhero movies made to date. Absolutely. Christopher Reeve, born Christopher Dolier, I hope I'm not mispronouncing that, Reeve, was born on September 25th, 1952, in New York City to Barbara Pitney Lamb, who was a journalist, and Franklin Dole, excuse me, Franklin Dolier Reeve, who was a teacher, a novelist, a poet, and a scholar. His parents would only be married for four years. They divorced in 1956. His mom moved with him and his younger brother to Princeton, New Jersey, where they attended Nassau Street School before moving to Princeton Day School, which Reeve would have, I guess it was a private school. It ran like K through 12, and Reeve would spend most of his compulsory education there. Reeve was an honorable kid. He was athletic. He played soccer, baseball, tennis, and hockey. Uh, he he had a difficult relationship with his dad. It was uh, his dad's approval was very performance based, and so even at a very young age, Christopher put a lot of pressure on himself to act older than he was. His first acting role was at the age of nine. He was cast in an amateur version of the operetta The Yeoman of the Guard, which I have never heard of. But after that, he spent a summer as an apprentice in the Williamstown Theater Festival in Williamstown, Massachusetts. Uh, Sorry, he did that at 15 years old. He graduated from Princeton Day School in 1970 um, and started acting in plays in Booth Bay, Maine. So he'd known that he wanted to be an actor for a while up to this point. He was planning to go to New York to start a career in theater. But his mom and his stepdad advised him to apply for college, and so he ended up making a promise there. He got accepted into Princeton, Columbia, Brown, Cornell, Northwestern, and Carnegie Mellon. He decided to go with Cornell because it was farther from New York, so he wouldn't be tempted to go work as an actor as over finishing school. Of course, he joined the theater department at Cornell. <laughs> of course. During his freshman year, he was scouted by Stark Hesseltine, who was an agent who discovered Robert Redford, Michael Douglas, and Susan Sarandon. Hesseltine insisted that he keep his promise to his mom to complete college, but also told him that he should come to New York once a month to meet casting agents and producers and to work with him over the summers. Before his third year of college, Reeve took a leave of absence to travel to Glasgow, Scotland, and he saw theatrical productions throughout the UK. He helped out actors at the Old Vic with their American accents by reading newspapers aloud for them. He then flew to Paris to study French theater and spoke only French while he was there, which he had been learning in in primary school, so he was fluent in it at this point. Uh, he would eventually return to New York to be with his girlfriend. After the return to the States, he chose to focus solely on acting, though he had several remaining GE requirements at Cornell. Uh, he arranged to have his first year at Juilliard count as his senior year at Cornell. 
joining the the student body at Juilliard, he made quick friends with Robin Williams, and this friendship would last for the rest of his life. So I'm trying to be careful about what I leave in or leave out of this particular bio because Christopher Reeve was a very busy man, but he auditioned for a Broadway play called A Matter of Gravity in 1975, where he played Catherine Hepburn's grandson. Uh, he was also working on a CBS sitcom at the time called Love of Life, and they they sort of finagled the schedule because Hepburn had pull there. But the opening night of A Matter of Gravity, Christopher collapsed due to malnutrition and exhaustion. He had been living off of very little and resting very little in order to try to keep up. His understudy came on and finished the performance for him, although he was eventually able to recover. He stayed close with Hepburn, uh, but the play moved to LA in 1976 and Reeve dropped out. His first Hollywood role was in a 1978 film called Grey Lady Down, starring Charlton Heston. And his third Hollywood role would be as Clark Kent, also known as Superman. Funny story about him getting cast, the casting director, Lynn Stallmaster, put Reeve's picture on the top of the pile for consideration three separate times, only to have it thrown out. Eventually, she got Richard Donner to meet with Reeve, and he was sent a script the morning after the meeting. Reeve based his portrayal of Clark Kent on Cary Grant in Bringing Up Baby, which I haven't seen, but I assume you have. Now, Reeve was very tall and... And, and yeah, that, that checks out. <laughs> uh, Reeve was very tall and very handsome, but he was also very skinny. So he had to go through... Went through an intense two-month training regimen with David Prowse uh, supervising. Uh, David Prowse, better known as Darth Vader. Yes. Was he Jaws as well? No, that's Richard Keel. Um, oh. He was in uh, David Prowse. Play, he was he was in the Darth Vader suit, and he was in, he had a small role in A Clockwork Orange. I haven't seen that one somehow. Those are his two biggest credits. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first Superman film crossed three hundred point two million dollars worldwide. That is before being adjusted for inflation. Reeve received a BAFTA and used his celebrity for causes like Make-A-Wish and Save the Children, which was another charity. He also served as track and field coach in the Special Olympics, alongside O.J. Simpson. In 1979, his first son, Matthew Exton Reeve, is born uh, out of his partnership with Gay Exton. Uh, it's spelled G-A-E. I, I'm not sure what it's short for. Um 1980, he releases Somewhere in Time with Jane Seymour, which is a time-traveling romance movie. <laughs> yeah. um, much of Superman 2 was filmed at the same time as the first film. Uh, the original was supposed to be a three-hour epic, which I'm probably alone in this, but I kind of wish it was. Donner would be replaced by Richard Lester for the sequel in terms of directing. And I believe Donner had a special cut released in 2006, the Donner cut. Kinda. After filming Superman 2, Reeve and his family left London for the Hollywood Hills shortly before going to Williamstown, Massachusetts. I don't think he liked being in Hollywood very much. And he wanted to sort of... So the thing about Reeve as an actor is... And I realize how pretentious this is going to sound before I say it. It was a craft for him. It was very much something that he wanted to master in the same way that a cobbler or a carpenter would want to get very good at what they're able to do. And so... He started trying to gravitate toward more morally ambiguous characters. He played a role in a movie called Death Trap and also in a World War II drama, Monsignor. And I hope I didn't mispronounce that because my, my French is not as good as Reeves was or anyone's really. In 1983, his daughter Alexandra Exton Reeve was born. Superman 3 was also directed by Lester and largely panned. Now, I love Richard Pryor. We've, we've been over this before. But that movie's real bad, Nick. It's real bad. 
Yeah. Reeve got a lot of credit for the fight in the junkyard against evil Clark Kent. Yes. Yeah. Movie's Um, garbage. Yeah, it, it's garbage. sort of the first Superman is a great movie. Um, and I actually it's really like, like the second the sec- one, too. The second one is an entertaining movie. Um, the Richard Lester stuff, you can tell the difference between the Richard Lester stuff and the Richard Donner stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, but three and four are garbage. He, pay- he played Basil Ransom in the Bostonians for a tenth of his normal rate because he was usually able to pull about a million, but he just liked the role. Catherine Hepburn told him he was marvelous in that, and then he let her know that he would be working on the 1985 version of Anna Karenina, which she told him was a mistake. This would be prophetic, but not for the reasons that anyone else thought. It's This is Reeves' introduction to equestrianism. Uh, I see. Um, I see. Yeah, uh, we'll, we'll get back to that in a second. Uh, shortly after yeah. that, he starred opposite Morgan Freeman in a movie called Street Smart. He also produced this movie, uh, but this was Freeman's first Academy Award nomination as a supporting actor. He separated from Exton in 1987 and moved back to New York. She and the kids went to London. Uh, He acted in a flop called Switching Channels and assumed that his film career was over. He focused on plays for the next few years. He was almost cast as Richard Gere's character in Pretty Women, but he walked out after he had to audition against... uh, a less enthusiastic casting director. I will actually, there's a very great selection of movies that Christopher Reeve just passed on. I'll get to those probably at the end of this bio. Uh, his career picked up again in the early 90s with a number of made-for-TV movies. He was offered a TV series, but that would have forced him to move to LA, which would have put him further away from his kids in London, so he wasn't really up for it. His second son was born in 1992 uh, to his wife, Dana Morosini, who would later be known as Dana Reeve. On May 27th, 1995, while at a, I don't know what they're properly called, a horse event. I'm not cultured. Uh, his horse <laughs> made a refusal. Uh, it began a fence jump and then stopped. And because it stopped so abruptly, it threw Reeve forward. His arms got tangled in the reins and he landed headfirst on the far side of the fence, shattering his first and second vertebrae. The resulting cervical spinal injury paralyzed him from the neck down. He was rushed to the ER. He spent five days there, heavily medicated and delirious. And when he when he came to, he was seriously considering euthanasia because he didn't want to be a burden to his family. Uh, he would change his mind after talking to his wife and visits from his children. But this was a really rough period for him. Um, yeah. Particularly the nights in isolation at the hospital were rough because he wasn't sleeping and he was left alone with his thoughts. The first person that was able to make him laugh after the accident was Robin Williams, who visited and, I guess, impersonated a proctologist in the way that only Williams could have done. Reeve would maintain a a pretty intense exercise regimen for the rest of his life with hopes that he would be able to go through with whatever cure for paralysis if it were ever found. He made his directorial debut in 1997 with an HBO film called In the Gloaming, which was nominated for five Emmys. In 1998, he produced and starred in a remake of Rear Window. Uh, That same year, he published his autobiography called Still Me. Uh, A second book was published in 2002 called Nothing is Impossible. That was more of a a general life philosophy book. Smallville, he, he had a cameo in Smallville in 2003, which I guess was sort of like a passing the torch sort of thing. In October of 2004, he was being treated for an infected pressure ulcer, which was causing sepsis. He would 
go into cardiac arrest on October 9th and fall into a coma. 18 hours later, he he died. His ashes are interned at Ferncliff Cemetery and Mausoleum. The I, I had to gloss over a lot of it because there is a lot to his life. He had a lot of charity involvement. He was always very, very active. He had tons and tons of hobbies for like his Superman performance was aided by the fact that he was actually a hang glider. So he knew how to make his body more aerodynamic, which helped with the flight. Just a few roles that were turned down by Christopher Reeve. He was offered the lead in American Gigolo, The World According to Garp, Splash, Fatal Attraction, Romancing the Stone, Lethal Weapon, and Body Heat. And Jeez. he said no to all of these. The idea of him doing his best Mel Gibson impression is somehow very, very entertaining to me. The Muppet Show, episode 418, featuring guest Christopher Reeve. Produced between January 22nd and January 25th, 1980. It would premiere in the UK on February 15th of that same year. Quick turnaround. And stateside a week before that on February 7th. We get to our cold open and Scooter knocks on Reeves' dressing room door to let him know that the curtain will rise in 15 seconds. So I'm going to put this as politely as I can. Why would you put Christopher Reeve in a dressing room full of rats if you know the rats are in there? It's the Muppets, man. Rats are everywhere. They're just part of the family. It's true. Uh, Reeve asks what the rats are doing in the dressing room, and of course they're all dancing around, so Scooter says he thinks it's the foxtrot. And then Reeve pulls an office and looks straight at the camera and says, gee, most stars get groupies, I get rats. Yeah, but he likes the rats, man. He ends up hanging out with the rats all episode. He's pretty easygoing. He's, uh... He's chill with the rats. Yeah, he can go with the foot. And... That sort of continues into the Muppet Show theme. When Gonzo blows his trumpet, he's inundated with rodents and says, all rats, which I would assume is going to be more of a runner for the episode than it actually is, but that's all right. No, the rats are like a little little, tiny mini theme. Kermit welcomes the audience to the show and announces their guest as, quote, none other than that fantastic film star, the man who plays Superman, Mr. Christopher Reeve. The strange thing is Kermit's up there and is that, would you call that a robe or an overcoat? Uh, It looks like a bathrobe. So like a pinstriped bathrobe and he's dressed in it in order to allow a quick change because he's in the opening number. I like this opening number a lot. There's a little bit of David Byrne in it. Maybe that's just a lot of David Byrne in it. Yeah. (laughs) There's a lot of David Byrne in it. (laughs) On a set dressed as a swamp Kermit in a leisure suit, which is not oversized, but still super David Byrne. He joins some frogs and an alligator singing a song called Disco Frog. Can the frog dance? He can also hop. He hops along the lily pads and full body shots with the help of a number of different puppeteers dressed in black. Disco Frog would be released on the 1979 Sesame Disco album. It was written by Joe Raposo. You can see the puppeteers in this oh, yeah. one. But it's okay, like, though, because Kermit, when you see Kermit take center stage, it's always a good time. No, it is. I just, I normally don't notice those things and I normally don't see those things and I look for them. But this time I thought it was, it was the shadows of the puppeteers are very clear on the wide shots, especially mm-hmm. with, with him jumping around and stuff. You could see, I, you could see how they were doing it. Um, it's probably something that like probably a disadvantage of having them in high def. Mm-hmm. You know, if you were watching it back then on your little 17 inch cathode ray television, you wouldn't notice. At you all. would have never picked that up at all. We go backstage and Kermit congratulates the other frogs for a successful opening number, at which point Miss Piggy in a full, is that what you call a first stole? I'm not actually sure what a first stole is. 
Uh, something like that. Fur coat and hat. Fur outfit. Yeah. yeah, coat and hat. Enters from the stage. And in a world, in a world of talking animals, that leads to questions I don't want to get into. Honestly, you look at this a little too closely. Any animal that's not vegan has some interesting questions to answer. Miss Piggy enters from the stage door and announces that she's returned from picking up a costume for her hum- her number that night, where she plans to sing Never Before, Never Again, which we heard previously in the Muppet movie, which we've we've had continuity nods to the movie before, haven't we? Once or twice, but this is the, this is the t- only time someone actually mutters the words, the Muppet movie. Right. It was so romantic in the moonlight. Oh, Kermit, remember, remember. Oh, we snuggled yeah. together. Mm-hmm. Mm. Uh, uh, Piggy, you, you'll get to sing the song again right after the guest star spot. Oh, good. Well, who's the guest star? Uh, Christopher Reeve. <laughs> Christopher Reeve? Christopher Perfect Body Reeve? Piggy is so horny this night tonight. So Piggy is so horny in this episode. I just like I put down bad touch Piggy, which I'm probably going to say again. And also, she hasn't been this way since Nureyev. Yeah, but that even that seemed a bit more subdued. Like this is more. <laughs> this is significantly more shameless. Back on stage, Gonzo explains that he can't do his act, which would consist of him performing the first act of William Shakespeare's Hamlet while hanging from his nose. But he can't do that because he sprained his nose while rehearsing with heavy shoes. I'll let that sit there. It's fine. Uh, uh, Kermit goes to ask Reeve if he'd like to fill in since they already had the props and everything set up. Reeve's a little bit reticent at first, but Kermit convinces him. And I was wondering if you'd like to fill in for Gonzo's Hamlet spot. Hamlet? Mm-hmm. Wouldn't you like to play Hamlet? No. But every actor wants to play Hamlet. No, not really. Well, this is your big chance then. Okay. Yeah, uh, but, but you'll have to wear tights. Hmm. Well, it won't be the first time. We see our first appearance of the phone booth, in which Reeve just sort of dips and changes. On stage, Reeve has a bit of a hard time with his lines, which, to be fair, he didn't really have a lot of prep time. To be or not to be. That is the... Um, Question. Um, not now. No, 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 that's your line. I know. <clears throat> To be or not to be, that is, that is the question. Whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. Uh, but Fozzie helps him out a little bit, hides on set with the script, and Beauregard interrupts to provide a prop for the scene, which is a skull that I don't think we've seen before. Well, it's it's so so in the play, of course, it's poor Yorick. Right. right? Now, there was a Muppet character named Yorick. True back in salmon days for salmon friends days. Um, so at first I thought it was maybe they were going to use York, which would have been awesome, mm. but no, they use another skull and call it York. But I think it would have been cooler if they had actually used York from, from salmon friends. I'm sure they considered it. I know, you know, what I noticed watching this is that um, how many like titles of books and movies have come from like just the, the monologue and Hamlet. So many. Uh, Link enters the scene explaining that the character name was his nickname when he was just a little porker. Um, yeah, he was a little Hamlet. Of course. And then Fozzie, Yorick, Link, and Reeve all break into a edition of a song called Brush Up Your Shakespeare, which I was not familiar with, but it's from an old Cole Porter song uh, from 1948's Kiss Me Kate. Brush up your Shakespeare. 
start quoting him now. Brush up your Shakespeare, and the women you will wow. Just declaim a few lines from a fella, yes, sir. and they'll think you're one heck of a fella. And if your blonde won't respond when you flatter, tell her what Tony told me about her. Just kind of a little comedy outro for the for the bit, you know. It's interesting to see Reeves' range a little bit. Like I, I think I'm only really familiar with him from Superman, and then some of his later uh, stem cell research. But I don't think I'd seen him in many like out and out comedic things. He had his comedic moments in Superman, but. It's interesting to see his range. My favorite thing about the Hamlet thing, though, is that before, when Kermit's like, hey, do you want to go do Hamlet? And he's like, nope. <laughs> yeah. And he's like, he's like, no, you don't want to. He's like, it's every actor's dream to go to do Hamlet. And he's like, not really. <laughs> and he's just like, well, would you do it anyway? He's like, sure. <laughs> it's such a funny exchange where he's like, don't you want to do Hamlet? And he's like, nah, nah, I'm OK. So good. <laughs> so. We go backstage again, and I want you to imagine, if you will, walking into a shrine that is completely covered in your face, because that's what Christopher Reeve would see if he walked into his piggy's dressing room. See, as someone who has a wall like this, but it's Star Wars stuff, I'm not allowed to talk. Different, though. Like, there's a difference between generalized Star Wars and all of the pictures being of Ewan McGregor's face. Uh, that'd be dreamy. Anyway, go ahead. But Ewan McGregor would feel uncomfortable if he walked into your house. He would. He would definitely feel uncomfortable. He would He would feel uncomfortable if he walked into my house anyway. But yeah. So Kermit stops by Miss Piggy's dressing room to let her know that she's on next. And he doesn't actually make it in all the way. He just sort of peeks in to find out that it's been completely redecorated with Superman memorabilia. Except for one Kermit picture mm-hmm. that is framed and sitting on her, her vanity. Of course, if Miss Piggy's there, Fufu's there. And... Miss Piggy has already got an autographed picture of Christopher Reeve, but she doesn't know where to put it. Fufu, ever helpful, knocks away the framed Kermit picture to make room. Is he getting legit jealous? The thing is, it makes more sense because they established the early Muppet movie context. Yeah. They built that in. But it, it, what, even though he was dismissive of it at first, it's still the song. It's still their song. Yeah. But he, I think he gets legit jealous in this. Oh, he absolutely does. Kermit is a model of how you should actually handle jealousy, though, <laughs> because he feels the jealousy and then he doesn't really act on it. We move to the Muppet News Flash, where the newsman announces that a <laughs> sheep has escaped, which this would have been so a place last episode. A sheep had escaped from the Department of Agriculture's Maximum Security Sheep Station. There was a horror movie about sheep. <laughs> I'm like sure there was. Swarming sheep eating people or like zombie sheep or something like that. Sheep are terrifying. They are. Don't get into a staring contest with a sheep or a goat. It's just upsetting. This lamb is one of a new kind of sheep that has been bred to hunt wolves and is extremely dangerous. Uh, This killer lamb has been trained to attack at the sound of a bell. Of course, right on cue, a rotary phone rings on his desk. And... The sheep takes an attack of opportunity that the newsman was looking where he was supposed to be looking. Sheep are terrifying. I don't know why. They just are. That's fair. Goats goats freak me out a little bit more. But we go to Veterinarian's Hospital, which is a massive turnabout because our patient this week is Rolf. Hey, wait a minute. I'm not supposed to be the patient. Today you're getting a dose of your own medicine. Oh, <laughs> yeah, but my medicine tastes bad. 
Well, bad taste never bothered you before. <laughs> okay, okay. Who's going to be the doctor? Dr. Reeve! Oh, Chrissy! Chrissy! Dr. Reeve is there in Dr. Bob's. So, I don't... I've seen... I don't know what they're called. Those circular mirrors that you would see on, a, like, a stereotypical doctor's forehead. And a lot of... Especially a lot of older things. Yeah. I never knew what they were used for. But I love the fact that Reeve's got it tilted down and he's looking up into it. Um, right regularly throughout the sketch like he's he's fully committed to this dr eve ex- explains that he's a gp which nurse piggy insists means that he's a gorgeous person here's what i love about dr reeve you know how you talked about how uh, he said that his um his clark kent was based on Cary grant mm-hmm. in this number he is either doing the doctors for mash like the, the actual film mash or more importantly, I think he's doing the Marx Brothers. Honestly, I went straight to Reanimator. Like he's got, <laughs> wow, he's got this, right. he's got this pinched look that he takes on some of the time, where like he just purses his lips, and I'm like, hmm, he's he's stitching corpses back together. I think it's more likely his inspiration is the Marx Brothers, but okay. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I, I don't know if it was he was inspired. I don't. This probably does this predate Reanimator, but it just reminded me of it a lot. Also the jokes about fixed and put to sleep and not saying that to a dog was just great. Just relax. I'll have you fixed in no time. Please never say fixed to a dog. <laughs> well, anyway, you won't feel any pain. I'm going to put you to sleep. Oh no, never say put to sleep to a dog. <laughs> no, 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 come. This has gone far enough. Chrissy, let us go to the nurse's lounge and yes. Lounge. Uh, the, the sketch ends with, the, the standard announcer and Reeve saying that he wouldn't be there. And so Miss Piggy seems surprised that he's leaving and his response is faster than a speeding bullet, which honestly they've made it far enough into the episode. That's that was earned. It's good. Oh, they're edging you with the Superman stuff. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. They're just edging you. They're never going to pay it off either. No, that's, not entirely. that's for Sesame street. That's for Grover. Our UK spot should not have been a UK spot. <laughs> it should not remotely have been a UK spot. Ugh, this show is disgusting. Get away. Get away. I'm going to write to someone important and put a stop to it. Sam the Eagle is backstage writing a letter to complain about the conditions on the Muppet Show, which it, it took him long enough. As he writes, Janice and Floyd begin to sing Sam's song. And Rizzo, our first proper viewing of Rizzo, although I don't think Rizzo's named in this episode. He's not named, but he is the singing here, and he's played by Steve Whitmire, who is is Rizzo. So I think this is considered the first appearance of Rizzo. Rizzo dances, and Beauregard start, joins in in the background with a harmonica, and then Nigel pops up out of nowhere and starts whistling. <laughs> he calls Nigel a thing. <laughs> he's writing his letter, and he's like, a thing is whistling. <laughs> And then it calls it goes Bo a lump, I think. Yeah. He says like a lump is playing harmonica. <laughs> I don't think we've seen that much of Sam this season, which makes me doubly sad that this is a uh, a UK spot, but it's a great bit. Yeah, it's very funny. Sam eventually loses it and scares everyone off and then starts humming the tune. <laughs> yeah. As Kermit comes in and Sam refers to it as something called Fred's song. But yeah, when, when Sam's like, there are he's trying to write his letter very indignantly. He's like, there are rats here. There's this thing whistling. <laughs> There's a lump playing harmonica. <laughs> yeah, we Sam has been kind of put on the back burner quite a bit. I'd say over the last two seasons. Mm-hmm. But um, uh, this is a good this is a good Sam number. This is a great bit for sure. Uh, we go back to Christopher's dressing room where he's talking to the rats about the script for the show. And Miss Piggy, ever so subtle, 
drops by wanting to know how he got the job as Superman. And she's so very happy to see him take off his hospital gown. Um, very happy. She's very happy. Nick. Very, very warm. I mean, he looks great. I'm not going to say he doesn't look great. He looks great, but he's wearing this tight blue t-shirt and boy, it sends piggy through the roof. He tries to explain his audition process and be taken very seriously as an actor and not a piece of meat claiming that strength had nothing to do with getting the part as he continues destroying the furniture in the room on accident. Miss piggy checks for the Superman suit in his wardrobe, which obviously it isn't there. And Miss Piggy, clever, subtle, respectful Miss Piggy, asks him to use her body to recreate the scenes in which Superman flew with Lois Lane in the movie. She uses the words, use my body. Um, she wants him to draw her like one of his French pigs. Things get kind of PG-13 uh, because... Have you ever read Burt? You know who Burt Ward is? Yeah. Have you ever read his autobiography? I have not. Mm. He talks about how he used to have, um, let's call them female suitors, that when it came time to express their affection to each other, they wanted him to leave on the cape. Yep, that tracks. And so uh, when Piggy's looking for the Superman outfit, I'm kind of thinking the same thing. Oh, she wants to experience the Man of Steel. Things got kind of PG-13. Um, they do. They do. They get they get rubbing up on each other. And I wrote I wrote horny AF. Oh yeah. No, the the thirst on the pig is real. Kermit comes in and he's green with Pigby. I don't feel terrible for Kermit because I don't think he actually wants to be with Miss Piggy. He's just feeling neglected. <laughs> but it's still rough. I I don't necessarily wish it on him either. No, but <laughs> she's all over him. She's gonna be all over him later too. Oh, absolutely. Like I said, I think Nureyev got off easy. He absolutely did. Oh, sorry, we, we go back on stage and Fozzie and a Matador play the Toreador song together on the piano. But this is a this is basically a Wayne and Wanda sketch, kind of. The tune yeah. lures in a bull to the performance who charges them and then sends them flying off the stage. The Toreador song is from Bizet's opera Carmen, which Yeah, is, it's it's just a joke, right? You got a you got a Matador and they're playing the Toreador song and it attracts a bull. That's the joke. If you don't, if as a child or with my children, if you had no idea what a matador was and no idea what a toreador was or that this was the toreador song, it's just, uh, they're just, they just get run over by a cow. Yeah. It, it's, I mean, it's the Muppet show, so you can come out of left field, but Muppet Labs, Dr. Bunsen Honeydew introduces his latest invention, which is an electrically heated milking machine. <laughs> <laughs> yes. This one takes uh, a turn. Oh, God. Um, this one takes a turn. So this is our good chance to remind people that The Muppet Show is not necessarily a family show or a show for kids. Uh, but hopefully this goes over their head. So the machine overheats like Duran Duran's excessive machine. And the teacups explode, revealing a permanent... Oh, sorry. I, I skipped ahead a little bit. The cow freaks out and never actually gets the machine on it. It did not want its, its nipples warmed up. Which, fair, I feel like there needs to be a longer conversation before that's ever entered into play. <laughs> Got to talk about consent with Bunsen here. Oh, safe, sane, and consensual are not part of his vocabulary. But the machine gets tangled in Beaker's hair, and then it overheats and the cups explode, revealing a, I guess it gives Beaker a perm? Kinda? It which, gives him a, a more feminine-looking haircut. Why, Beaker, 
You're hauntingly attractive today. This is no, no. Bunsen puts his arm around Beaker and says, "Beaker, you're you're looking hauntingly attractive." There's so yeah. so many problems with this, but also this relationship is never subtle, and the cow agrees. It's just all gross. Bunsen Honeydew is probably the scariest Muppet for a number of reasons. He might be. If we were doing a Muppet version of Silence of the Lambs, I don't know who plays Buffalo Bill, but Bunsen is definitely playing Hannibal. I was not prepared for hauntingly attractive. My soul wasn't ready for it. We go to our final number after whatever the hell that was. (laughs) And Kermit introduces Piggy to sing Never Before, Never Again. From the Muppet movie. From the Muppet movie, which was her song with Kermit. Rolf gets through the intro before Miss Piggy sabotages the performance. Yes. And hurts Rolf. Rolf did nothing wrong. She has been so mean to Rolf all episode. He did nothing. She needs to get him off stage. This is a Piggy in heat, Nick. Yeah. This is a Miss Piggy in heat. You get out of the way. There is nothing ambiguous about this. There is nothing cute about this. She wants to f*** him. This might be what you call boorish behavior, but <laughs> she just wants to f- him. Kermit wants to know who will replace Rolf and Piggy surprisingly suggests Reeve, which gives us another telephone booth wardrobe change. And he leaves super rat in charge, which of what I don't know, but maybe he's training them for like a circus of some sort. He's, yeah, he's got this little gang of rats he's been hanging out with. Yeah. He, <laughs> they have accepted him as one of their own. He goes to stage to accompany Piggy, although he's not familiar with the song. So Miss Piggy insists that he play East of the Sun and West of the Moon, which was a jazz standard written by Brooks Bowman in 1934. Partway through their duet, Miss Piggy asks him to sweep her away and fight over the buildings of Metropolis. I think she's got a very, she's got a set of very specific kinks and... Yeah, she wants, she wants to live out the scenes from the movies. (laughs) Reeve makes a joke about her weight. Yeah. Which gets a very stern warning from Miss Piggy. But it doesn't, but not a deal breaker. Not remotely a deal breaker. No. She no. gives him all sorts of kisses all over his neck and chest. And Reeve is just like, oh, she goes at him. The thing is, I feel like he got a script for what he was supposed to do on the show. And they just keep pulling him into different things. And he's like, in for a piggy, in for a pound, I guess. But did you catch him? Did you catch him? He's, he's so close to breaking in this. Oh, yeah. He's very close multiple times to to Frank just breaking Frank him. does that to people, though. Frank does do that. When Frank goes full ham with Piggy, you can't do anything about it. The second yeah. she says alligator. Yeah. You lose it. You lo- yeah. yeah. There's nothing you can do. John Denver no. had no shot. John Denver had absolutely no shot. You're right. <laughs> but we, we get to the close of the show, and Kermit thanks Reeve for his appearance. Reeve makes another reference to Miss Piggy's weight. Yeah. Which was one of my my favorite turnabouts because Miss Piggy goes straight in for the shot that she would usually go for. She gets that shockwave upper arm that you would get from hitting, I don't know, steel. And Kermit replies as much, he really is the man of steel. But to Reeve's credit, as the credits start rolling, he sort of doubles over in pain and loses composure over Miss Piggy's attack. I like this episode a lot. I actually honestly like the Reeve episode more than the Star Wars episode. Yeah, it just felt more consistent. Oh, I agree with that. But I want to restate the fact that Piggy is so horny in this. Like That's it's what, a, it's it's inappropriate. Like like someone like someone comes by their show. It, imagine switching the roles. Oh, switching <laughs> the it, genders. It, uh, if if this was Statler doing this, we didn't see or Statler. Scooter or somebody. Oh God, the idea of Scooter doing this is terrifying. 
now they've had him be attracted to him before, but if the entire episode was Scooter trying to nail Raquel Welch. Yeah, that gets awkward. That gets awkward yeah. fast. Because this isn't innocent. <laughs> oh, no. She's commenting on his body. She's like wowzaing when he takes his shirt off. This is not innocent. This is thirst. The pig has needs. Next time, hand me down my walking cane. Hand me down my hat. All right, next time, we got another superhero in our midst. We will be doing uh, episode number 419 with Wonder Woman, Linda Carter. So a little more superhero. So our our trip through the Justice League continues and ends, to be fair. But uh, and then episode number three twenty, number four, uh, episode number four twenty with Bob Marley. No, episode number four twenty with Alan Arkin, actor Alan Arkin, actor director Alan Arkin. LunaticDaring.com at LunaticDaring. Review us on your favorite, you know, all that stuff. Um, but uh, until next time, I'm Chad. I'm Nick, and thank you for listening. Feet of Lunatic Daring is written and produced by Chad J. Shonk and hosted by Chad J. Shonk and Nicholas Jackson. Music by Seth Podowitz. And a proud production of Antithesis Audio. Well, this has been an evening to remember. Why? I forgot. Oh! <laughs> <laughs>